It's a balmy Sunday afternoon, and a group of friends find themselves in an unfamiliar but popular part of town. Debating where to find some food, the first friend asks a local shopkeeper. The second strolls down the avenue until a sign catches their eye, and the third consults Yelp on their iPhone. Each friend is interacting with the same neighborhood, but each friend is engaging the neighborhood in a very unique way. The first friend entertains the perspective of the local. The second partakes in the community experience as the visitor. The third friend relies on the brand. The perception of the neighborhood formed from the larger data set accessed online. To call a place a neighborhood is to attach the presumption of identity, an identity that hinges on a collective understanding among its occupants. But who or what? has the responsibility of classifying this identity. And can these identities coexist even if they are different? Accompanying this conversation is a written piece titled The Local, The Visitor, and The Brand, co-authored by our friend and collaborator, Matt Bender, a designer in Washington, DC. Matt was intimately involved in every facet of this research project, always offering his unique and thoughtful perspectives. diagram and, and maybe it's kind of, of the nature of what lines you used and that brand is kind of this dotted line mm -hmm. but I see the internal neighborhood and the identity of the visitor's perspective of the neighborhood being a little bit more static than the brand and the brand is potentially the more the most flexible of the three and it's the piece yeah. that is most actively moving and that's probably more, it, it brand probably has the highest ability to move around because it's the most well, ephemeral of the yeah. three. The, the, it can be defined internally by the neighbors or externally by the visitors. I, I So my version of this diagram, the people that live there are very different than the people that are visiting. And the brand is the overlap, how it's branded. And you get into like who, who brands a neighborhood. Well, I, you know. I, I imagine that the I imagine that Ken's diagram where everything is almost uh, concentrically aligned and your diagram where everything is being teased apart are potentially the two extremes. And those two extremes are talking about the health of the neighborhood. So when visitor brand and neighborhood identity are in alignment, you see those three spheres becoming concentric. Mm -hmm. And when um, those three identities start to argue or pull at each other, we get to your extreme where the brand is essentially what is holding the neighborhood together from uh, the, the, um, 
people who live there versus the people who don't live there. I mean, yeah. you, can, you can kind of see it in the way we think about our country. We have a left and a right side. And the only thing that's holding the left and the right side together is the brand of America. And so maybe what holds the people who live in that neighborhood and the visitors to that neighborhood is the agreed upon brand of going somewhere or arriving somewhere. Yeah. So I also kind of uh, titled these as, you know, the, the neighbors have that internal identity. It's internally generated. Um, the, you know, tourists, I, I say, are observers. Yeah, I, just, I just struggle with that word. I, I just landed on visitors for some reason. I don't know why. No, I, I think it's true. You know, they I think it shows that they're not from here. Um, and then I said brand as like a sort of a salesman, you know, where you could be an outside entity, you know, moving into the city or, you know, a developer, or you could be part of the neighborhood and you're trying to brand uh, like a farmer's market or like something like something that's you know internally generated so i think the brand can come from inside and outside and when all three you know circles overlap then you start getting you know a successful neighborhood versus um i mean i was talking to you earlier about cardozo and you know the brand it's uh, if you broke it down simply like u street as the brand mm-hmm. you know separates the neighbors well let's get into that visitors and everything so i think yeah let's yeah so that's like so that's um bring up the google maps um just google maps and go to u street so this and matt and i have been talking like this i think is one of the most interesting places to study because we live and work in this area and everyone you know and, and acknowledging that we have bias and perspective of people you know that we're not from this area we work you know, relatively moderate incomes, we have education, and we call it U Street. But, you know, like, so it's like, I guess just acknowledging the perspective that every community might have a different perspective that we don't know about. Right, but, yeah, you y- but multiple brands. Like. Right, but U Street is, like, historically a very culturally diverse place, has a really long history. It's always been called U Street, right? So, like, this is this is one of the glaring things that actually inspired me to, to look at this. Um, and you zoom out just enough, you can see the word Cardoza on U Street. Keep zooming out. There it is, boom on the word Cardoza. So Google Maps defines that as the Cardoza neighborhood, right? So it's interesting that we always say, I'm going to U Street, and U Street is clearly the center core of that neighborhood. Obviously, the name Cardoza comes from the Cardoza Education Campus. Which isn't in the neighborhood. Right. Google defined it. But my, my question was, how is this, how, who's deciding this? Is it algorithm based? Does someone pick it? Is it based off of developers calling this Cardoza or something? And then there's a, this, this is all coming from this New York Times article that I had posted in the Google Doc about how in San Francisco people, uh, neighborhoods are getting rebranded. Yeah, uh, it was interesting because some of them yeah. are, you know, little tech companies that try to brand the neighborhood, like, you know. What was it like Fisk, or no, Detroit uh, was Fiskhorn, Fiskhorn? So, so Google also got them wrong. Yeah, some, and they would mess up, and then they, it just—that's what it became. So now all the visitors who come there think that the name that it has is different. And that's what I was going to say to Austin's comment about the brand being the most ephemeral and the most easily changeable. It yeah. is. You're right. It definitely is. But I could actually would argue that it's potentially the most prominent because it's more people see it. Yeah, and it's, it's like the most that's visible. that's what its inter- internet presence basically says, right? Austin, I guess the question I want to ask, I want to kind of like bounce some of these ideas off you because this is your first time seeing it and clearly you're like jumping in and trying to investigate these things. <laughs> but like, do you think that this idea of brand, you typically attached to like internet presence somehow dilutes 
the authenticity of the brand on the ground. Like people that live in the U Street corridor, they're never saying Cardozo. Maybe Cardozo like right around the you know right around the high school or something. But like, could these brands coexist? And we've been implying that 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 creates a weakness, but maybe it doesn't. Could there be a secondary brand that exists online that that is different from the people on the ground? Yeah, I I, I imagine there would be, and it appears that there there is. I like I see all of this very similar to kind of what you think of yourself versus what other people think of you, in that we have this kind of hopeful interpretation of what our identity is in society and who we think we are and that brand and what our friends and our family think of us and then what strangers think of us in the moment that they pass by us. And the hope is that we feel good about our internal brand and that that aligns with what everybody else is seeing when they interact with us. Right. But if that if that sort of what other people see is different than what you feel, then, you know, you kind of get into the, I guess, muddled waters. Yeah. About how you feel about yourself, you know? So but, I, but I guess I would then extend that into um, we have our most hopeful identity, but then there's also the turn of phrase of wearing multiple hats. And so I, I have different friend groups that I'm essentially the same person with, but I um, wear a different social hat in different friend groups, whether more of the leader or more of the passive person. I work full-time um, where I'm kind of middle management, and then I teach where I'm in a leadership position in charge of 11 different people, and then I'm a son in a family, which is a subordinate um, like uh, identity. And so I think in the kind of the way that we have our highest ideal for our self-identity, but then we can also wear multiple hats. I would imagine that placemaking is similar to that, and the identity of a neighborhood is also similar to that, that the internal residents have their most hopeful idea of how they see themselves and they see their neighborhood. And then there's the visitor's outlook, and whether that visitor is the political system, which is the overarching eye for the entire city, or visitors as if it's a visitor from another state or another country coming for a tourist exploration, or it is um, you as a visitor and then you move there and then you become the, um, the resident there. Um, but, but essentially the, the hope would be that the, the internal person or the internal, uh, the person who lives there, that their view of themselves in its most kind of hopeful identity is also shared with that, that outside view. And sometimes it isn't. And sometimes maybe a neighborhood wears different hats depending on oh, yeah. what institutions interacting with it. Yeah, I think, so a place me and Ken started our uh, walking tour um, was in Columbia Heights. And I think, you know, you want to talk about different hats. It was, you know, the farmer's market. Was that Saturday? Mm-hmm. Um, and something I wanted to get the students to actually look at was, like, wh- how do people interact in the farmer's market versus the giant, which is 100 feet away? You know, what are the identity of these two things? How do they function? How do, you know, people see them? And I think that's sort of just a, a glimpse of, like, what you're talking about, where it's there are definitely, you know, multiple identities. It's a sa- They both serve, you know, 
the same function, but they're perceived very differently. And how how does the neighbors and versus the visitors perceive these things? Well, I was going to actually counter that argument. I think that what you said made a lot of sense, Austin. But like, people are different than places, which are very concrete things and can never move. People aren't put on a map and given a name, and for history to define them. So like. Say some developer, developer or Google algorithm renames your neighborhood to something that's favorable to like gentrification, for example, or something that's favorable to a different uh, crowd of people that had maybe lived there previously. And then, you know, more often than not, people are up in arms over the fact that their, their l- place got branded without their consent. So well, it's almost like... Have you ever got a bad nickname before that's what that's literally <laughs> what i was gonna say i was literally gonna say that someone gives you a bad nickname yeah it's like they, mi- they mispronounce your name one time and it's like oh downhill from here so it's like not the hat you choose but the hat someone like put a big stupid fucking hat on your head <laughs> <laughs> and said and it was like you're called this now and you this is who you are yeah you know <laughs> and you're gonna like it and you're gonna you're gonna wear it all seven days of the week and you take it off <laughs> one hour on sunday and then you're going to put it right back on. Yeah, you just have to wash it and then get it right back on. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that? I thought you were countering it, and then it sounded like you agreed with it. I agree with all the points you made, but I think sometimes it can go wrong and people get pissed. Yeah, but isn't that isn't that just a you know a bad neighborhood with like no real identity because too many overlapping identities? Yeah, I think I think that that goes that goes back to the that goes back to the three circle diagram of the. The, the internal neighbor versus the external visitor versus the brand itself. And when all three are overlapping and concentric, then there's harmony and everybody agrees on um, their internal and external identity. And then when there is disagreement, everything's pulling at it. And whoever is the kind of stronger presence I, wins. I, I wonder if it has to do with, like, I guess, visibility in the neighborhood. So, you know. Uh, maybe a neighborhood has like a, an identity it doesn't show to visitors or doesn't want seen, but like, you know, th- th- once that's infringed upon, then you know people are, I guess, up in arms. Is that a visibility thing of like, okay, now everything in the neighborhood that happens in the neighborhood is transparent to everybody, everywhere, or is it not that? Yeah. Well, so I, I think you you bring up a really good point. So every every not every. Saturday, but but many Saturdays in in the spring and in the summer, I go over to the Mount Pleasant Farmers Market, and so my identity, my my my, oh, what's the word? The way that I see Mount Pleasant is through the lens of that farmers market, and so the way that I've kind of branded Mount Pleasant is this um, uh, kind of culturally mixed area of white and Hispanic populations, but also a very young population and that there's like a, a hipster young person presence there. And so I view it as relatively safe and, and relatively um, accessible for young professionals. But I, but I only see that entire neighborhood, which is many more streets than just the farmer's market street. I see the entire neighborhood through the lens of essentially one plaza. And I would, I would suspect that if there are, let me just say that there's like 25 neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. The other 24 neighborhoods are probably all, what's that? There's 180? Okay, so let's say that there's 180 neighborhoods in Washington, D.C. I would suspect that 179 of those neighborhoods 
probably only ever experienced Mount Pleasant through that farmer's market. And Mount, uh, Mount Pleasant, it, like Mount Pleasant itself is the one who is actually seeing all of itself. And so the kind of external brand is really determined by that kind of what's visible, the level yeah. of visibility well, and what's what's up front and in everybody's face. I, I also find it interesting because I, I think that gets back to sort of placemaking and the way Mount Pleasant is laid out. You know, the neighborhood is very different than the main street and, and where the farmer's market happens. Yeah. And, and the, far, uh, the farmer's market is kind of like at this apex of like in between, you know, this little plaza that's not really used for anything until the farmer's market happens, right? Um, and, and that's something that I think me and Ken wanted to look at was, or at least I wanted to t- uh, dive into was the typologies of neighborhoods, you know? Is it centralized? Is it very axial? Like, does a specific typology of neighborhood lend itself more to, you know, having that identity or that brand? Or does it, you know, take, you know, when the neighborhood is separate from the brand, how does that interact versus the the brand being at the core of the neighborhood? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're exactly right. And you, you brought up the point that, uh, to me, as we were walking, that brand, we've been talking about brands as kind of like negative connotation sometimes. And like this is, there could be an example where people in the neighborhood are trying to brand themselves, especially retail people, business owners, small business owners, like brand is could be a really positive thing. And brand usually is a positive thing, right. but like, we're talking about imp- imposition of brand as well, right? Because, I mean, in Mount Pleasant, are, are there any real big, like, outside corporate brands? No, not really at all. So. And there's, like, one bank maybe. But the, the thing is that Mount Pleasant was a a separate town before uh, it was engulfed by D.C., like, in the early 1900s. It was a separate municipality, which really lends itself to the fact that it has a great scale it has a good mix of owners to renters. It has a really awesome buffer in the back that makes it d- a defining thing. And it has the luxury of having a major corridor and just the right urban design to have a small retail stretch that's a quarter mile walking distance, perfectly situated to give that buffer. So like this is an example where it's very clear where the visitor brand is, where the residential brand is, and then you brand Mount Pleasant as a place where these people will come together and people can go to the yeah. farmer's market, right? And that's a, that's a positive example, yeah. I think. I, I think... Um speaking about walkability too like like google is driven i think mostly by the vehicular aspect the the road view you know google maps like directions it's not really that you know how do you experience through google the walkability of something you know if you want to go to what uh meridian hill park you, you get snapshots right anything that's kind of like that or on the mall i'm pretty sure you get snapshots um i think maybe the scale of mount pleasant lends itself well to the walkability but i think the aspect of walkability versus vehicular traffic also. So without actually saying it, are you subtly implying that the lens through which we see Google Maps through the street view is also distorting potentially our ability to understand these places? Ken's thing about like, uh, is there an algorithm or something like who, who decides, you know, if you're only looking at Google and you know what it provides, like Yelp reviews and as a visitor, you know, that's all you see. Um, now the pedestrian who's living in the neighborhood walking, you know, to the metro or biking to work, they see more. So is all Google Street View imagery in the day? Because 14th Street at nighttime is a completely different place. Mm-hmm. And 14th Street at nighttime is a different place for pedestrians 
for people in a car and for people walking by. Yeah. And and you get none of any of that from Google Street View. That identity is stripped from Google. Yeah. And and so and like I'm starting to kind of follow what you guys are kind of peeling back, which is how is this um how how essentially is this service distorting um the way that we're understanding place by the yeah. limits of what it's defining and like how it's defining it right is that the yeah. that's, that's kind of I when it gets to the to the fact that, that Ken brought up earlier that um what was it in, in Michigan you know Google mis- misspelled a neighborhood and that gets totally changed and right. that's because Google just somebody typed in the wrong and people start pronouncing it differently yeah and all like visitors who up. come there it was a fish fish, horn fish corn or fish corn and people yeah. started calling it fish horn or something like that yeah yeah well so like a good so a good example of this i, I so to, to kind of give you another thing to talk about i've been like obsessed with this adams morgan thing and it's really it's really making me go insane so like i know this is a minor difference but this is what kind of set me off that makes it th- i makes me think that robots are doing this stuff so like <laughs> so if you were to talk to anybody the center of adams morgan is 18th street yeah right it is the place where everyone comes and there's a shift in the urban grid on either side right it has the most density it has all the nightlife all this stuff if you start to direct to google maps the center of adams morgan is over here that's where it defines like the i'm going to adams morgan it sends you to this place and dc is like on its maps also has a kind of a random point and I, I keep wondering, and I did this actually the other n- day when I, I, we were going to Baltimore, we were going to Gabe's, and I didn't know his exact address, so I just, I typed in uh, Hamden, and it like took me up to like the main street, and like that made sense to me, and it's like a navigational thing, someone I wasn't familiar, I like landed there, and then I like got his address real quick, and then I went over to his place. I know this is a minor difference, but it's kind of a, it's, a, it's an explainer as like a microcosm, like, so I went down this rabbit hole, I looked at all these neighborhoods, and I'm like, okay, what, how is this center point calculated? Sometimes it seems to be like the geographical center. Sometimes it's like an actual post office. Sometimes it's completely random. And I'm wondering, like, along with edge and center, like how that's defined, like that's another thing that affects like how people go. Like instead of driving to the center point, people might drive to this point, which is only 200 feet away, but it completely could completely change their perception of that neighborhood. Yeah, that's where the the billiards restaurant is which which is not the center of adams morgan yeah. it's like a hole in the wall that could be like billiards for, say, say said they, that place did a really really good job at viral marketing and they like they they somehow got the internet hits to create the center point of the neighborhood yeah what if the, i mean the, uh, the neighborhood's on what's that 18th mm. um i mean they don't really need to brand online as much you hear about them you hear about the nightlife Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe somebody off that needed to brand their restaurant to compete, and then Google pulls it over there. What's What's kind of funny is I've actually had a very intimate experience with that particular neighborhood dot. In that, I was <laughs> I was going to meet a friend in Adams Morgan, and I didn't know what the dress was, and I typed in just Adams Morgan, and that that's literally where it took me because I remember being like. Well, I've never gone to like this side of Adams Morgan where there's a park right next door, where there's that like green area on the map, and and when we pulled up, I was like, "Are we are we here?" And he's like, "Yeah, this is where you want me to take you, Adams Morgan." 
And I was like, this isn't Adams Morgan. He goes, yeah, it's kind of weird. Like, it's next street over. And I was like, oh, okay. And he's like, all right, well, have a good night. And I get out, and I have to walk through this alleyway behind the bank. Mm-hmm. And then you arrive on Main Street. And, and... Was it, like, an arrival? No, th- not at all. <laughs> it was it was kind of like I walked past three dumpsters, and then there's, like, drunk guy. And then I was there. Uh, but I, I, I wonder... Like, if I was the one programming Google Maps, if I wanted a very efficient algorithm, I would probably just do the centroid. I would probably just say, what is the kind of profile of these neighborhoods? And then whenever, whatever the mathematical centroid is, the the calculated center, that's just where I would put the dot. And then I wouldn't have to pay somebody to essentially figure that out. I would, I would probably wait until a neighborhood contacted a representative Google to enlist a, a prescribed center because I wouldn't have I'd like it wouldn't if I work there it's not my responsibility to like yeah. accurately depict everybody's like main street I'm just saying this is this is the zone that that, that was represented in GIS and then I have an algorithm that picks the centroid and then it's maybe to what you're saying Ken who kind of has the largest internet presence or who has the the thought of mind to engage this mm-hmm. realm of identity uh, it's it's like um, some people have Instagram and some people don't have Instagram, and that's a that's a whole that's a whole new way of representing yourself. Mm-hmm. And some neighborhoods know that they're on Google Maps, and some neighborhoods don't know that they're on Google Maps. And if you're one that doesn't, then your identity is essentially up to the whims of the internet. That's actually a good take, I think, because I I was imagining that everyone was like hyper aware of their name, but in reality. Maybe people, some people don't care, or maybe it's just not doesn't occur to them that they're where they live is being named. Yeah, or yeah. you you just don't like you like being sort of that little ambiguous space that's your yeah. identity, and you're like, you know what, name doesn't matter. One of the things I kind of want to ask you guys about that that Matt, you made me think about a couple like ten minutes ago um, was how is the identity represented, and it made me think about Columbia Heights and the the center of Columbia Heights being the farmer's market, the Target, the Metro stop. That's how everybody, when, when you say Columbia Heights, if, if, uh, if somebody, whenever I'm like, oh, I live up in Columbia Heights, and somebody goes, oh, where's that? I go, oh, the Target, and they immediately yeah. know, it's the, oh, the it's commercial. the Metro, it's the commercial kind of the core. commercial core versus, because there is sort of a retail, you know, side streets and everything, but it's not the big commercial brand, mm-hmm. brand names. So I was thinking, in a way, overexposed identity streets. What happens to the people who live in that neighborhood but don't necessarily engage that major artery? And how do they see themselves and how do they see the identity of the neighborhood if they live there and their brand is being exposed through this artery? And they and they take no part in it at all. Well, I, I think that gets into something of, of can you have can you have more visitors in your neighborhood than actual neighbors? Yeah, so Columbia Heights is a great example. It doesn't necessarily have an outer bounds; it has an inner bounds, and that's why I take issue with this super ambiguous big shape. I don't think the people that live right at Meridian Hill Park say they live in Columbia Heights. They say I live near Meridian Hill Park, or they say I live near Sixteenth Street. I don't know if is prescribing a shape to every neighborhood like Google Maps does is the right way to do it. it I, I find that very interesting because I was actually classifying that as sort of like a centralized thing. And if we were to study that, study it with like a DuPont, 
and Logan Circle, where in Google it's definitely not the it doesn't look as centralized at all. But you said you said the word is it the right way? I'm wondering maybe there's not a right way. Maybe there's just many ways that we can start to define these places. And maybe it's that we need to start engaging these softwares with multiple layers turned on at the same time. Like when we design, we don't just turn on the structural layer and then present that to the client and say, here's your building. We're simultaneously showing them the structure, the units, the furniture, the circulation. We're layering on a series of information to give a more clear picture mm-hmm. of how these systems are interacting together. And right now in Google in Google Maps, the identity for a neighborhood is purely just a, a algorithmic polygon. And maybe what it means to engage a map as a kind of informed society means to have the ability to see a neighborhood through the lens of the legal bounds, a cultural bounds, a kind of culinary or artistic bounds, a walkability bounds. Maybe maybe there's kind of a better way to understand the kind of dynamic flex that all places have if we could see it through multiple lenses at the same time. The decision, though, to make an outline applies intentionality and then implies a bounds, even if yeah. it is not super... Um, you know, uh, exact or whatever it is, but like there's something to be said about just prescribing this big blob to a neighborhood. And and it's clear that people don't always abide by that big blob or they don't always identify with that blob. Can I, I kind of want to throw something out. The point of saying this is to kind of challenge the entire conversation. Um, When you have a private home, you essentially have the public and the private components of your home. The public being kind of the foyer, your living room, kitchen and contemporary homes. And then you have the private side, like the laundry room, your bedrooms, the private hallways of of the kind of back portions of your house. And when you have guests over, they see the public side that you probably keep very clean. And then you engage the private side in a completely different way. And... People like that. People like to have a portion of their house that is just theirs. And maybe there's something to be said that Google is defining a public identity, but maybe there's something sacred about Google not actually knowing how a neighborhood sees itself. Maybe in the fact that the algorithm misses it actually keeps the neighborhood safe and keeps the neighborhood sane and keeps the neighborhood proud of who they are because only they understand what what it is. Only they see their bedroom. Having a house is like you have to be invited in, you know? I don't just go into somebody's kitchen and, you know, start rummaging through the refrigerator <laughs> or something, right? Unless you've been invited in, you know? You have, a, you have to have that rapport, and, and I think that might give the neighborhood that ability to still invite people in. They, they have agency. Right. They have agency. So... What if, because of that brand, the secret part of the neighborhood changes over time without the consent of the people that live there? Let's take Adams Morgan, for example. 
say a developer, two very, very powerful developers started branding it as Adams East and like Morgan West and say they were like, come to Adams East. Like it's all the, all the cool young kids are going to, and then like Adams West was marketed towards like seniors or affordable housing, for example. And then over time, slowly over 10 years, projects get built. People move there because of Adams East or Morgan's West. And it becomes two neighborhoods and people, people like don't even realize it's happening. I think that gets back to sort of the, the thing I had said at the beginning is, you know, do these neighborhoods have permanence? And how I defined it sort of was these deep-rooted factors that appear innate. And over time, like, nothing is truly innate in these neighborhoods, right? You know, space wasn't defined by as A, B, or C. Somebody came and said it was. You say it long enough or you put enough, you know, you put a metro there, you, you get, you know, something of permanence that's going to hold down that identity. But that can go at any time, and that can slowly change, and then you change sort of that, you know, that deep-rooted factor isn't as deep anymore, and then that identity changes. And, you know, it's the perception of the innate in a neighborhood that might give it that mic drop. <laughs> I think they kind of give a rebuttal to what you are asking about what happens if your neighborhood is branded around you. Um I would I would then ask what is the role of a neighbor a neighborhood in either recognizing that um stopping that or embracing it. In in one way the kind of bootstrapping side of me would just think if I live in a neighborhood I should have some awareness to how it is evolving, how it's shifting and have some stock in in its longevity. And so as I would see things change, I would what if you don't I would probably the, embrace the, it. What if you don't have the means to do that though? Exactly. Like, what it, like okay, so you're not on Instagram, but Instagram's now saying all this stuff about you. But or the the neighborhood we talked about that's sort of this in between that isn't identified. What if Google just decided to slap a name on it? They don't, you know. If they yeah, don't exactly. If they don't look at it and they never know, then yeah, the the city council funded a program to rebrand all it the neighborhoods, yeah. and you ended up with an Adams East and a Morgan West, and it was completely outside of the internal. Yeah. Um, what if Google just like switched the names of everything to whatever they wanted? How much of that like switch would stick? I don't know. I'm sure that it would have some type of effect. We would have to kind of understand. Like some We'd people that that stuck to their identity would fight back some people that didn't have one might accept it some people that didn't know might now just be labeled as something and they don't even know about it right yeah yeah i think i think we're circling a couple different conversations right now but to kind of go to the go to the the question of what happens if your neighborhood was rebranded around you i think then it's in one part the neighborhood's kind of responsibility to understand how their neighborhood is being rebranded and to develop roots and to have stakeholders and to raise a populace that is engaged in controlling that identity. And then I think it's kind of of but the risk. What about gentrification? I made a huge note here that I think that's something that's totally involved in all of this, but it's so encompassing that it might be too much to... Yeah, effectively working. So that that goes that goes into um, that goes into the second part of it in that maybe we as a society need to develop um, laws and regulations 
that that secure a level of kind of internal ownership mm-hmm. that that the, the the sculpting of these neighborhoods can't be weighted from the outside but they would be weighted from the internal element we're seeing that in anacostia right now and i'm by me saying anacostia i'm literally creating that myth everyone knows the southeast is is being eyed for development right now and it historically has more of a low income populations in the city whose hand is deciding that that is the kind of place that it's going to be developed and a lot of it is done with really really great intentions but some of it is done outside perspective right right by never being invited into that neighborhood you know you can have the best intentions ever but yeah you know the understanding might not ever be there so in my experience even this entire ward and quadrant is called anacostia is that just us saying like okay we don't live there so it's southeast anacostia they might have a very very strong internal brand that we just don't know but we view it as like well, potentially the incomes here are lower than there is across the river, so we're just going to brand this whole place as Anacostia, and hopefully Anacostia will be the gateway to create new neighborhoods and create this new identity. And I, I wonder what would happen if these got rebranded, for example, over like something like Columbia Heights if it got rebranded. The same way like certain things like maybe the Columbia Heights metro station sort of really solidifies Columbia yeah. Heights as like it's not going anywhere. Like, is, like what are those identities or what, what are those? They don't have to be, you know civic buildings or whatever but like what are those because it, it's not it's not a destination in the way that the neighborhoods downtown are and so it's it's maybe there's one node or one hub that's servicing this entire subset of neighborhoods yeah and like you know where, where are there food deserts and where i think this is going into a conversation about exposure because we live in washington dc but if you asked me to tell you all the neighborhoods up and down Manhattan, I don't think I could. So, like, for me, Manhattan as as a portion of New York City, I just understand Manhattan as just the monolithic identity of Manhattan. And so, well, at, at that point, I'm so removed it gets from the scale. Yeah, right. yeah. And so we we live in downtown Washington D.C. And so. The way that it's it's almost like you um, they say that um, the kind of universal they say that you only retain about 250 people in your kind of internal Rolodex, like 250 faces and 250 kind of friendships, like true friendships. Maybe the kind of internal Rolodex of places is also nuanced in that we live in downtown Washington, D.C., and so we have a very... Um, nuanced way that we're considering the internal and external identity and the nuanced brand um, in Washington. But for, say, New York, we just, as as a way to kind of hold content in our mind, we just need to think of Manhattan as just Manhattan because it'd be too much for us to understand the nuances of our life in Washington, D.C., but then to also understand the nuances of every other important city up and down the east coast and so i don't that I, maybe this gets into kind of protection through ownership so we would then be the stewards of the internal brand of washington dc and then there would be stewards of the internal brand of manhattan and then it's 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 about empowering the people who are the namesake keepers in those in those areas so I think that brings it out to the back to the city scale 
And I think that that is like important to recognize is that maybe since we live and work in these places, we're like so hyper focused on these l- small differences between like Adams Morgan Center is not is is here and it's not there, but like Google Maps is also <laughs> mapping the entire fucking planet, yeah. like, <laughs> and they don't they don't care, you know, like or the the solar system or whatever they're mapping, like maybe the neighborhood scale is more uh, fluid. You're talking about sort of these these storytellers or story keeper, the person who keeps the story and keeps the sort of the identity and the history of a place. But people move, you know, people grow up, people move out, like things change. So maybe at this scale, it happens so frequently. So how much of that identity is lost because of the turnover in where you live? Yeah. That, so you just you just like turn like five light bulbs on. So youth, the way that youth treats place versus clap on clap off versus um <laughs> the way youth treats places versus like the previous generation. Um and the way that we like two would be like the way that um technology how we we are essentially our the previous our 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 forefathers our previous generations they didn't have Google Maps, and so the way that they viewed their neighborhoods were more of a collective social identity mm-hmm. of the people you knew and the neighbors that you kept and the relationships that you held that kind of defined the kind of social boundaries of these neighborhoods. And we're progressively moving towards a more isolated, individualistic um, yeah. uh, kind of lifestyle. And... In doing that, we may have started shopping out the need or the desire to brand places to algorithms. Like Mm. everybody who used to live in Mount Pleasant understood Mount Pleasant because they walked their child around Mount Pleasant and and, and they visited their neighbor and they shopped at a certain corner store and, and they took walks around the neighborhood and they had curated this social identity for what Mount Pleasant means. Mm-hmm. But then a kid who moved from New York to Washington, D.C., went to Georgetown for two years and then um, rented an apartment in Mount Pleasant has no attached history to that yeah. place. And so they've essentially shopped out their ability to understand that place to the algorithm itself. Well, do you think that's a, a, a city center thing versus so I, I've noticed this going back home to my parents in the suburbs and it's very, you know, neighborhoods grow up together. Kids move out of the house together. Uh, families retire at the same time. Everybody moves out. And then, you know, either that, you know, cul-de-sac or whatever um, sort of falls apart or, you know, it starts over. For, it's a cycle and just starts over from the beginning again. New families move in. Kids like another you know, 18 years um, versus the city, which, you know, a lot of people are moving back into the city now. So I, I can, I can respond to that. Potentially that has to do with economic means where, um, you know, like I grew up in a similar suburban situation and the same exact thing, all the kids in the neighborhood, all the kids grew up. Now like I can see young families moving back in. It's because that, that house or that place kind of retains a certain value that is a starter home, for example, and then you, you age out of or you stay forever or whatever, and you wait till your kids go to college or like, but in the city. You don't age out of a, a place per se. Yeah, but like, I guess in the city, there's there's constant development and turnover and things are pushing, pushing, pushing towards a higher market rate. Progress, I guess. And like, for you know, whereas like in the suburbs, that suburb 
that there's no improvements or changes happening in that neighborhood. That house is always exactly the same, so it retains the same exact. That, that park you planned is like, you know, there's there's no, no one's like gonna put a new cafe there. Right. Like it's it's just gonna be the same hundred houses, that, which that, I that, you know yeah yeah. So it's like that does speak to the nature of how like a city's identity or the neighborhoods within a city can shift rapidly because you could get a huge influx and then everything shifts and it completely I mean, changes the I idea. Think dynamic. So I work in Silver Spring. I think that will be, you know, once Discovery leaves, I think that's going to be a huge like turnover of, of businesses and, and retail and what can survive, what can't. I mean, uh, we're already seeing like restaurants are dropping like flies because, yeah. you know, but Amazon could fill it now. They could just buy the Discovery building. <laughs> that's the other thing. <laughs> But yeah, I get what you're saying. But like the first time you, m- you actually you mentioned that Silver Spring was like failing to me, and I was like, "What? Silver Spring? I always imagined Silver Spring was great." And like, but you were like, "No, I see it every day on the ground, and I see it only when I go there to go to the AFI theater right. or to go to dinner or like see my sister's house." And I don't, I'm a visitor, and I I see it as prospering, whereas you're a user of the street and you and see it as it's something's it's happening. Yeah, and I mean, there are going there are restaurants that have not failed. You know, they're sort of the, the staples, I guess. But there are so many that come in and then go under. You know, you see the, you see this place that's trying to trying to rent this space. Yeah. So. It's mostly the Georgia Ave influx of just how much income comes up that, that pipeline. Mm-hmm. I want to tie back to Austin's comment about the fluidity of, you know, the, ad- the, the advantageous fluidity of having technology. And it's abundantly true. And that's something we talked about, I think, with Marcus like a long time ago on here and, and other and other conversations we've had. But it always comes back to this where we are literally are the first generation that's had access, global access to maps and technology to communicate with anybody in the world. Like people were people were making maps, you know, for forever. But, you know, when they actually had to draw the map and like really hire a surveyor and to do it all, like that was the map that stood for a hundred years or fifty years of like Someone's charting the coast of Africa. Like, some I dude came it. back and was like, "This is what I drew." Like, that—that's the shape of Africa. <laughs> You're like, you ever I see those maps? And it's like, wow, this guy really wasn't good at. Yeah. <laughs> I know you talked about. I think Macmillan is a neighborhood, but it, there's well, big it project. It, it doesn't include this, right? There's a yeah. big project going in there, so right I would here. love to see how that. Like That'll probably be a neighborhood boundary. That'll right. add it. But, It'll but add it. W- will it move it? Remove it from the lake? Like, will that be enough to be like, okay? It I could recenter it. Like. Right. Yeah. I think that would be something that would be nice to come back and once it's finished to really just observe. Yeah, it, it's I think the intention is to recenter right. it. To I mean it's it's a lake unless you Well, make ma- the McMillan Reservoir is the the identity of McMillan. The identity of McMillan is twofold. It's the McMillan Reservoir and then it's the McMillan Filtration Plant which is the sand cisterns that are That's kind of to the east done. of that that the master planning proposal is to turn that into a mixed use community age in place um multi-generational um civic um community center hub neighborhood and and the idea is that the neighborhoods around that would benefit from there being a kind of civic center to a kind of edge of Macmillan. Um, and and it, w- it would essentially act as a magnet for the neighborhoods around it. That, that well, 
that uh, was that stronghold and and Edgewood and Bloomingdale essentially would tap into that kind of civic community center. What is the boundary of stronghold? I was, but what when Austin said, you know, it it, it attracts or like, you know, it, it would act as a magnet. Yeah, so magnet, like, would it take from the others? That I think that is something. I don't. I don't. Like, I, don't I don't know how it's defined right now, but I mean, maybe it's an empty space that once you define it, like, it, it wouldn't take from. But I mean, I I did not work on the McMillan project. Um, I have exposure to some of the nuances of it mm-hmm. but the way that it's structured and programmed it's it's not meant to kind of act as a vampire no, neighborhood no, no. but, but when you say really magnet it's it's attracting so it's, you know yeah it's going, like it's something like not you know i i think it like, i think it would like act more like a else. no i don't think it's going to consume i think it's actually going to act more like a receiving plug no, but, uh, but I think like, like would it, would a part of Bloomingdale now associate more with Macmillan because it's closer to this civic hub? Does that boundary now shift? Yeah, so Does so Bloomingdale becomes smaller. Like it's 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 programmed to have a southern community center pool, um, um, like right. boys and girls club pool house element park element to it, and so I would see Bloomingdale and Stronghold. I would see those residents being attracted to that amenity, yeah, I mean and I would I would essentially see blo- the identity of Bloomingdale um, to really th- Bloomingdale would probably become a a residential sandwich between Bloomingdale's main um, retail street to the south and the civic center of McMillan to the north, and the residents yeah. would start to identify themselves as being within this kind of now that a- amenity sandwich and then yeah. stronghold would see themselves as plugging into the eastern yeah, eastern side I mean, of that yeah Str- stronghold has a very distinct north north cap yeah coming through it yeah like that's i, I don't Got think it. that ever changes but like you said like it it plugs in versus now there's a sort of ambiguity of what happens you know along this bloomingdale mcmillan axis i guess to me it sounds like we're not saying it's not a good project. I think you're defending. You're like defending the project. But we're just. We're just. How does I think it's a great project? Right, but I'm saying I, let's so let's I. let's let's talk about like how would it redefine? We're talking about it in a vacuum. Like like say this was this was the A and those are the B, C, and D. Does it does it shift the boundary of B, C, and D? Does, does it and pull, does it does, does that it, matter? Does it pull more from one? Does it give more neighborhood back to another? Right. Like that. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think it it would it would kind of shift. The, all of the boundaries, it, it would it shift re- everybody's re- identity towards identity, it, right? Because now you have to think about yeah your identity more. You're like yeah. I, I was like before, you're like I'm in Bloomingdale, and you're really kind of on the northern fringe of Bloomingdale. But now it's like after this project happens, so so I was I was kind of almost adding another element to the diagram of neighbor, visitor, and brand, and and that would essentially be anchors. And it's what are you had talked about the metro in Columbia Heights as yeah. being something that solidifies its kind of position. Yeah, something in that appears innate. Yes. Say anchor. Yeah, and yeah. so and so I'm I'm starting to wonder, in in the kind of the realm of how a neighborhood can evolve based off of the internal pressures, the external pressures, and the kind of ephemeral brand. Maybe what 
maybe what allows neighborhoods to last or for identities to maintain is how many anchors. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's something I kind of wanted to bring up is, is if we could diagram other stuff and identify in these other neighborhoods, you know, what works, what doesn't, what are, you know, good anchors. And it seems to me like what we should do is like a moving forward and how we wrap this up is obviously we want to make a written piece yeah. and we've been doing a lot of that, but to anchor it, we just need to pick five neighborhoods. Yeah. And we need to say, okay, here's Mount Pleasant, here's Anacostia, here's this McMillan stronghold situation. You know, they're all different kind of, right? Some one's defined, one's ambiguous, one is defined by other people. We pick, you know, a Columbia Heights and Metro Center and we, we put them at the same scale and we just, there's no way we're going to answer all of the questions or, all, or even pose even the right questions, yeah. but we're just going to present like a, a, a conversational, mm -hmm. you know, a dialogue, which we've had she, today, which I think has been right. actually really productive, but it's like, it's all about the right layers. I think Austin brought up yeah. the layers is there's, you overlay the layers and then you start getting, you know, where these boundaries are, but can we, you know, could you overlay too much? Like what are the right layers to, or lenses to look at this stuff through Yeah, that are across all, you know, the five neighborhoods that we choose? What are the most concise, universal lenses? Yeah, the kit of parts. Right. You know, like, yeah, the retail core, the metro, the the community park, and all that stuff. I mean, it's kind of basic urbanism stuff, but it's like if we actually put it out and say, well, this affects brand. This affects how people see their well, neighborhood. Like and this even is with you, it's like, where's the Google address for each of these? Right. I, 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 like, I think this was a kind of a very informative study that you guys have been working on. I'm, I, I think what you the diagram that you ended up making 30 minutes before recording i think that was probably kind of the most important element mm -hmm. in that it kind of distilled the entire conversation down to um the the kit of parts that's defining yeah. this conversation what does it mean to have place what does it mean to be internal to that place what does it mean to be external to that place and what's that ephemeral brand yeah that is pulling yeah. and pushing and centering um, how that how that place is, is is anchored to a location. And then I think we've reached a lot of very interesting talking points as far as um, all the different ways that we view and catalog catalog um, how we view and catalog spaces mm -hmm. and the algorithms that we either kept in our mind through growing up in a place generationally or the algorithms that we've shopped out to things like Google and how in doing that we've affected how we've kind of solidified those concentric circles of those three places. So these three identities, it seems like you believe that it's okay that they exist and they exist potentially differently. And the, pro the point you brought up really, really, earlier which i thought was really awesome is that the closer they are together the stronger it potentially is and it exists on a spectrum yeah i'm i'm seeing this essentially as things in alignment versus things in tension mm -hmm. and the more that the internal the external and the branded um identity are in alignment the more harmonious it is and that the more that the internal and the external identity are pulling away from each other, the more that brand is being stretched and the more tension that is created. And those two extremes, they might not necessarily be 
a positive or negative extreme in their own right. Maybe in order for a neighborhood to reinvent itself, it needs to go through a process of being in tension. Or maybe for an environment to grow, it needs to be in a state of solidity of a place. Is, is it like possibly cyclical? Yeah. And it has an identity, but once you start to lose it, then it starts to, you know, they, these things spread out and then they reach that extreme and then they want to snap back together and find that identity. Yeah, it's all it's all ice cream. Every like <laughs> like too much of anything is not a good thing. And sometimes good. if something is stagnant in its own right for too long, you want it to well, be different. I, I and it's if something is in chaos for too long, you you can't wait for things to calm down. If you were to cuz I I I love your uh anchor and how you want to like where would you place that on this diagram? I think like the I think the anchors are actually placed throughout. I think there's no central anchor. So I think well, well, like do they do they ascribe? So you're saying they don't ascribe to like a specific circle here. They like it's a neighborhood anchor. It's not really a brand anchor. You can have different. Okay. I like I think I like the the kind of the physical the physical manifestations of these anchors are things like the metro stations can and the farmers market and the town plaza or like a clock tower. Or like Parliament or the Eiffel Tower, like it's these, well, it's, it's like these, so, these so functional or cultural places. Can a visitor have a, Can a visitor have an anchor? Absolutely, like, they, yeah. So they're gonna bring it with them. I, I, I'm so maybe, I don't know. Maybe maybe the anchors always lie within the neighborhood, seen or unseen, and the brand exposes them or doesn't. And sometimes it's good. Sometimes, sometimes that anchor is a neighborhood anchor, and it's only ever meant to be that neighborhood anchor. It's like, you know, a farmer's market maybe in Mount Pleasant. Um, or br the brand exposes it to the visitors. Now the visitors see the anchor and they associate with it. Or if they don't associate with it, then maybe these circles are getting spread out. So what is your, what is your response to the, that question then? Do you believe that these can coexist? Or do you believe that they are, are somehow negatively benefit? I know it's a, it can go either way. But what's your kind of final statement on that? these three identities can they are they conflicting more often than not or what's your what's your view of them in general if the visitor understands you know what is in the neighborhood meant to only be in the neighborhood you know they don't have to overlap they don't have to associate with every aspect of each circle but it's that alignment or that understanding of everything and the more spread out they are i do think the more tension is brought the less identity maybe what if they were all the same that would be dysfunctional. Yeah. It seems like in the beginning we had the assumption that that would have been the best, but we've arrived that it it's not. That's I, I'd agree with that. Right. I'd agree with we, we thought that, you know, the, the more overlap, that. you know, checking all the boxes, everything's the same, but I think you, you need that um, individual aspect to it. You need that, you know, there's always that thing that, I mean, Austin's analogy of a person, like there's always that thing we hold private and true to ourselves, and I think a neighborhood is allowed to do that should be able to do that yeah. yeah yeah i actually i think the way that you've drawn the diagram is actually probably the ideal if not like maybe close to like a proportional ideal where we have the visitor infiltrating the neighborhood but the neighborhood still being the dominant presence and having the kind of the power hold on their own environment that they're that they're in power of how the visitor perceives them 
and that the brand is this kind of larger ephemeral piece that that is able to float relative to those to those two and and if if all three of those things were perfectly concentric it would be as if your um kitchen was in your bedroom yeah and it, it seems like we should what we should probably do is use something like these these three overlaps to like define judge each neighborhood define each neighborhood i, I was going to say the same exact give thing. it a score yeah. like we take five six neighborhoods and we say this is our perceived alignment the brand is the brand actually could even be smaller than the rest the brand doesn't have to be the biggest thing you know yeah. so it's well, like the the visitor could be bigger than the neighborhood depending on like yeah what's there maybe maybe the visitor is bigger than the neighborhood but they don't overlap entirely maybe they do yeah. I think there's a lot of different versions. I, I don't know how we would rank those, but I think we could definitely. Well, we don't have to ascribe judgment necessarily. We can just right. say, based off of our, out, our our judgment system, this is how we perceive these things to overlap. Yeah. You can you can ascribe a negative or or a positive connotation to it if you want to. Yeah. If if the intention is to use this concentric kit of parts to start to analyze different neighborhoods, I'm kind of interested to see what the kind of static nature versus tension is revealed in different different areas i'm i I, my my intuition tells me that all the neighborhoods in dc are going to have the visitor hub within the neighborhood itself but i would be pleasantly surprised if you came up with a neighborhood where the visitor hub was outside of the neighborhood but the brand of the neighborhood was still holding it together. I, I, I suspect that there's that these things need to be touching in order for a neighborhood to exist. But if you found a neighborhood where if you could visit a place without ever interacting with its inhabitants and still be within the same branded but neighborhood, so that would be both amazing and horrifying. I think we have fair amount of work to do but it's yeah, good yeah. this is a good part part one and we'll keep going we're going to keep pushing this um thanks matt thanks hey everyone ken and i just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode the table sessions podcast is produced and edited by me austin raymond and ken filler and is a product of the Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.